And so the, the biblical author actually leaves this ambiguous so that the reader w- would decide if this was a good choice or not. Does that make sense? We're, we're practicing like this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Let's, so let, let's see what happens and let's pick up in, in chapter 3, verse five, verses 5 through 14. So we're going to read chapter 3, verse 5 through 14. Uh, and a little side note, um, whenever the Bible says, LORD, in all caps, that actually indicates the personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, so I'm going to be saying Yahweh throughout the rest of this message when reading LORD in all caps. Sound good? Okay, here we go. Verse 5 of chapter 3. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, which ironically David asked for the death of his enemies on his deathbed, um, but, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Did you guys catch that? When, when Solomon was asked about anything he would want God to give him, he responds with, I want hoah, which is the Hebrew word for wisdom. I want, I want wisdom. That's what he asks for. What a, that's an amazing response. Like, immediately I get the impression that this guy is just full of humility. Um, and this isn't the point of this message, but what do you tend to ask God for? I'll just leave it there. So following this dream... The biblical narrator shows us a demonstration of Solomon's godly wisdom in probably probably, uh, probably the most famous part of Solomon's reign. Um, It involves a dead baby and an alive baby. And yeah, you guys can read it. But so for time's sake, we're going to skip ahead. Uh, But just know that Solomon has deep wisdom and basically all of Israel is pretty impressed with him. So let's, let's go over to 1 Kings 4. You can just flip with me there. 1 Kings 4. Uh, and this, yeah, so, so Israel was, was a growing nation. Uh, and so, of course, Solomon, he couldn't do everything on his own. So using his discernment, he puts other trusted people in charge. Sounds a little bit like discipleship. Um, okay, so let's look at these positions. Um, we've got the priest. We've got the secretaries, the recorder, the commander-in-chief, there's more priests. you got to have priests. Uh, there's a guy in charge of the district governors. There's another priest who's also an advisor. 
a palace administrator, and then there's a guy in charge of forced labor. Huh. There's a guy in charge of forced labor. Isn't that what happened in Egypt? So why, why is Solomon enslaving his own people? Yeah, interesting. And so this term forced labor, um, or mas, is the exact same word in Hebrew to describe Israel's slavery in Egypt. Exodus 1.11 says, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with mas, to oppress them with forced labor. It's interesting here. Um, but as a result of this slave labor force, it seems that Israel and Judah prosper. And, and we see a few lines later, if you look at um, chapter 4, verse 20, the biblical authors write, and I quote, they ate, they drank, and they were happy. So again, the biblical authors leave this, amb- leave this ambiguous for the, for the reader to interpret. Was this good or was this bad? What do you guys think? Let, let's see what happens. Okay, let's move on to 1 Kings 5 through 8. These chapters are all about the, con- the construction of the temple of the Lord. Um, and yeah, this is something that Solomon just decided to like, yeah, to dedicate the, this temple to the Lord. And overall, it took him seven years for Solomon to complete this amazing, ornate temple. And fun fact about this temple, um, the Holy of Holies was literally twice the size of the tabernacle's Holy of Holies in Exodus. So this is like a grand, this is an amazing temple. Um, and so, so we read at the end of chapter 6, if you guys want to flip with me there, um, at the end of chapter 6 in verse 38, chapter 6, verse 38, it reads, In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. And then we read the very next sentence, which is chapter 7, verse 1. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to, go, to complete the construction of his palace. Okay, wh- wh- what are you thinking right here? Like, seven years for the Lord's temple and 13 years for his own palace. Do you think this was simply a stated fact about how long it took Solomon to build his palace? Could have been. Or... Was it a subtle judgment about Solomon's ever-expanding ego and that his wisdom might not be as deep as expected? Again, there's more ambiguity from the authors, um, although there's a clue in the number 13. Um, Ask me afterwards about Hebrew numerology. Okay. (laughs) Let's keep reading to find out more of the author's perspective. Okay, so Solomon ends up completing his own palace, um, and then builds a palace for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, remember her? And upon completion of the temple, this is in chapter 8, Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord and prays a long, beautiful prayer in front of everyone around. And he says things like, Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. Or things like, teach them the right way to live. Or, praise be to Yahweh, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Or, may he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God, and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to Yahweh our God, to live by his decrees and obey his commands, as at this time. It seems like 
Solomon's theology is pretty good, right? And then further than that, God's presence fills the temple in the form of a cloud. And so, so the author is still ambiguous. Like, does, does God approve of Solomon's choices? And like, he like fills the temple as like approval? And like, maybe the marriage alliance with Egypt or the forced slave labor didn't matter that much? I don't know. I, I guess we'll see. Let's keep going on. Okay, so let's go on to chapter 9, verse 4. And God shows up in a second dream. God shows up to Solomon in, in a second dream. And, it, and, it, and he says, As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command, and observe, observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne on, over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them, and will reject this temple." So let me ask this question. If Solomon was doing this already, why did God have to tell him? Right? If, if Solomon was already obeying the decrees, if he was already doing all these things, why did God have to tell him? How many people know that when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer? I, I think this might be a similar case here. God's visit to Solomon sounds more like a warning than it does a friendly reminder. So let's, let's continue on. Um, the rest of chapter 9 and 10 follows more of Solomon's accomplishments. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll just list them off. There's his, his massive slave labor force. Uh, there's a new town that he received as a wedding gift from Pharaoh, um, who actually, Pharaoh actually just attacked that city and killed all the inhabitants in it and then gave it as a gift. Uh, then there's the massive amounts of gold coming from all of Solomon's fleets of ships. Uh, and then the Queen of Sheba arrives and visits uh, and is impressed by Solomon's wisdom and splendor. And then, of course, the large ivory and gold thrones that come to his palace, accompanied by 12,000 horses, all regularly imported from Egypt. Okay, so at, at this point, I hope that we're beginning to ask some more questions like, is this supposed to impress us, or is this supposed to make us suspicious? Is this supposed to impress us or make us suspicious? And so in the, in the final chapter about Solomon's life, we see the biggest spiral happen. So I'll summarize chapter 11 for us. Solomon's marriage with Pharaoh's daughter wasn't the end of his marriages. Uh, he, had, he had actually a few other wives, um, approximately 700. 700. <laughs> he had 700 wives. This, this is the biblical author's way of portraying red flashing lights. It's red flashing lights. He intermarried with hundreds of women among several other people groups that God had specifically commanded Israel not to intermarry. And as a result, Solomon's heart was turned to worship other gods. Never underestimate the influence of someone you are romantically inclined towards. So, so now the biblical authors are pretty clear about Solomon's choice to intermarry. Uh, if we look at chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Solomon did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Very clear. 
All of this is the tipping point of the nation of Israel heading towards a steady destruction. But here's the thing. As the great biblical scholars that we are, we all saw this coming, right? Right? We saw it all coming. I mean, we, we know that one section of the law of Moses, right? The one that talks about how, how kings are supposed to act, right? We, we know this. Okay, let's, let's flip to Deuteronomy 17 and read verses 14 through 17. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. I think it's on the screen. And it says, When you enter the land Yahweh your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king Yahweh your God chooses. Okay, Solomon did that. He, he was appointed by God. Um, okay, let's keep going on. He, he must be from among your fellow Israelites. Okay, pretty good. Uh, do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. Okay, next. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. <laughs> for Yahweh has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Okay, next line. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And lastly, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. <laughs> yeah, this, this literally blew my mind when I first read this after reading Solomon's story. Like, Solomon broke almost every detail of this law, literally down to the horses from Egypt. Yeah, and, and this is actually kind of convicting for me um, because... If, if we knew the biblical law, if I knew the biblical law, if I knew the Torah, I would have known that, the most, that, that most of the story of Solomon is a failure. I would have known that immediately. If we knew the biblical law, we would know that most of the story of Solomon is a failure. Do you see the point that the biblical authors are trying to make? While we usually see Solomon's abundance of wealth as this divine blessing it seems as though the biblical authors are more depicting a sad story of compromise, little by little, until disaster. Even more than that, it turns out there's also a prophecy in 1 Samuel that warns against making a king in Israel because they will eventually enslave their own people. So I say this because I think there are two things that I want us to recognize. First, do you see what happens when we read the Bible in its context? the links and the themes just pop out much more clearly and much more powerfully. And when we take the devotional grab bag approach, we completely miss what the biblical authors are actually trying to convey. Uh, but secondly, is a reflection question on the life of Solomon. Are you living a compromised life? The whole story of Solomon is one of slow compromise. In, in what ways are you living a compromised life? Whether it's, it's living a double life, it's like, this is my Christian life, this is my school or work life, or whether it's letting something, like a, a person or a sin or a mindset, get in the way of your relationship with God. This is, these are just some examples of what a compromised life can look like. See, there, there wasn't a single moment that caused the decline of Solomon. 
There wasn't a single moment that caused this. None of his decisions early on really seemed all that malicious or like, willfully disobedient. But instead, what Solomon experienced was a slow and steady decline of his heart growing insensitive to the Lord. What Solomon experienced was a slow and steady decline of his heart growing insensitive to the Lord. The wisdom that he once had, representing a divine gift from God, now becomes a corrupt, a corrupted into self-glory and self-deceit. And once again, the biblical authors are asking us to reflect on ourselves. Do we really take our dark side? Do we take our flaws or our sinful tendencies seriously? As you can tell, um, Jesus' lifestyle and teaching are vastly different from that of Solomon. Uh, of course, there's the obvious. Didn't really have much money, and he didn't marry, he didn't marry anyone. Um, but <laughs> but I, think, I think Jesus truly corrects Solomon's narrative by not living a compromised life. This is the wisdom that, te- that Jesus teaches us, to not live a compromised life. So let's, let's actually see how Jesus does this. Let's see how he corrects Solomon's story by looking at his own temptation in Matthew 4. So you guys flip with me to Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the temptation of Jesus. Okay, and it reads, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It's also written, I just lost my spot. (laughs) Uh, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So in this passage, we see three different moments um, where Jesus is tempted to compromise. Uh, First, Jesus is tempted to provide for his own basic physiological needs, like turning stone to bread. Second, uh, we see Jesus is tempted to display spiritual power. Throw yourself from the highest place. If you notice, Satan quotes scripture to him. Um, And last but not least, Jesus is tempted to gain power and wealth. Um, this is the deepest of, of these three, I, I think. Um, and it's because it actually, power and wealth, what this is actually representing is the immediacy of becoming king without going through crucifixion. Jesus knows the path to his kingship is his crucifixion, and this would actually be a shortcut. This was his strongest temptation. So, you know, now, both Solomon and Jesus 
they, they both started in the same place, right? They, they knew or at least had access to the law, uh, and they had intimate relationship with Yahweh, with God the Father. This is our starting place as believers too. So how did Jesus overcome temptation? Well, in the face of temptation to compromise, Jesus didn't rely on human words, but on God's word. Jesus knew his Bible really, really well because he meditated on it day and night. There was never a moment in his life in which he compromised on following God's word. And ironically, Jesus directly quotes Deuteronomy three times in the face of temptation, and Solomon directly disobeys Deuteronomy. Solomon did not rely on God's word alone, and it didn't seem that he meditated on God's word day and night. Again, Deuteronomy 17, it's pretty clear. So of the three temptations of Jesus, which did Solomon succumb to in his life? Very likely, it was, it was all three, uh, but from looking at just his story, we see he was tempted to compromise by power and wealth, and in the end, he succumbed to it. Uh, worship team, would you come up? Um, Jesus famously says in Mark 8, 34 through 36, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, like Solomon, yet forfeit their soul? What good is it? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul. See, I, I believe Jesus is asking us tonight to evaluate the things that in, in our life that might be deceptively and slowly destroying us. I believe he wants us to learn three things from Solomon's story in contrast to Jesus' story. First, the Bible is our path to wisdom. So we must first read it, then study it, and then meditate on it. This is the same message that happened in it at uh, winter camp. And as we learn from Solomon's story, we have to know what it is, like what, what's in the Bible before we even study it. We saw how Solomon's story is way more clear when you've actually read Deuteronomy. So you, you can't really study the Bible if you haven't read it yet. Not, not fully. So this is my, my biggest encouragement to you guys. If you haven't read the Bible fully, read the Bible. <laughs> Number two, living a compromised life leads us to a self-destructed life. Living a compromised life leads us to a self-destructed life. And last but not least, number three, Jesus corrects Solomon's narrative, showing himself to be the true king. Jesus is worthy to be followed with our entire lives. He can be trusted to confess our compromises too. He's worthy of our worship. So I, I would encourage you all um, during our worship time um, to talk to a trusted friend or a mentor um, and, and ask them if they see any compromised areas in your life that you might not be able to see, as well as to reflect um, yeah, on, those, on those potential compromised areas. So to close, um, I have three application questions for us to, to think about. Number one, is the Bible my main source of input? And what is taking up more influence in my life? Is the Bible my main source of input? 
Number two, what temptations are in your life causing you to lead a compromised life? Or what areas of your life need stronger fences built so that a compromised life won't happen? And number three, what is Jesus' wisdom offering you tonight?